Not had enough of me yet? Well, good news. You can now listen to William Hill's Upfront with Simon Jordan podcast right here. The series, hosted by me, gives you a front row seat to big name interviews discussing their career successes and failures. Sit back and enjoy. But I, I had low self-esteem. Right. Being asked if I was adopted by school classmates and then going home and not remembering what the word was and asking my mum if I was divorced, things like that. Right. I mean, if we were the golden generation, then this current lot must be platinum because they've achieved a lot more than we do. Yeah. Can you imagine Sol Campbell running up and down a field for 90 minutes? Mm. Or Sol could. But Sol can do everything, can't he? Uh, <laughs> except get a management job. Um, now, that's not nice, is it? So when they're calling you economic James, when they're saying you're, you're, you're addicted to Xbox, when they're saying you're rubbish, couldn't catch cold and all that stuff, it's kind of like, yeah, but I know I can, but I, why, aren't, why aren't I doing it? This is up front with me, Simon Jordan. I believe there are a lot of vacuous, uninformed, unchallenged opinions out there. I want to get to the bottom line and cut through the nonsense. So with this podcast with William Hill, I'm going to get people with strong views who think they can stand them up to proper scrutiny. There's a good chance I might learn something along the way, and more importantly, so might you. Joining me in today's episode is someone who embarked a career spanning 25 years at the likes of Liverpool, Villa, West Ham, Manchester City and Portsmouth. One of the leading Premier League appearance holders who became England's number one along the way, perhaps lionised and criticised in equal measure, David James, welcome to Upfront. Thank you for having me on. I think we've crossed paths very briefly at times. I think we've done a couple of shows together. I think, mm -hmm. I think you handed me my head on a BT show once because I don't think I made a particularly good point and you concentrated my mind on the reality of it. Um, so that, that stands in my memory. But look, I, I often start these shows with you guys trying to ascertain what made the person become what they are. What was their journey? I suppose almost to, to coin an expression, what was their why? So David James the elite footballer, the England goalkeeper, starts on a journey. What drove you to be the person that you became? What were your motivations? That's a very, very interesting question. Um, I've said this before to people, and I think when I've said it, I've, I've almost felt a bit guilty because I was never into football. Um, right. Brought up as a one-parent family or in a one-parent family uh, with my mother. I befriended a kid at school. Um, he was actually in a year below me who lived around the corner from a grand. Pretty much every day after school, I'd knock his knock his door. He was a big West Brom fan. Um, Sil Regis. He used to do these drawings of Sil Regis. Okay. And play Sabutio. Right. And all these things were foreign to me. It was like, who's Sil Regis? Like kind of Brendan Matson, the three degrees, yeah? Yeah. And mm. it, it didn't mean anything to me other than him drawing them. But every Thursday, I, I would go around his house and his mum would answer and say, Daniel's gone to football. And I would just walk around the grounds again. They never twigged to the high should ask what football is he doing. It's just uh, something that happened. So eventually after a number of Thursdays, his mum said to me, uh, how old are you? I said, I think I was 10 at the time, nine or 10. Uh, she said, when's your birthday? He said, August 1st. And she went, hang on a minute. She went in. Daniel's dad happened to be the, the manager, the coach of the team. Um, and his mum said, oh, your birthday's on the... Uh, on the cusp. Yeah. On the, yeah, yeah, on the deadline day. Mm you can join his team. So in my head, I had a friend to go and play with on a Thursday at his football team as opposed to any aspiration of being a footballer. Um, so I kind of got into it serendipitously, if you like, in the end. But um, it was more about friendship than it was about football. Uh, we played for Welling Pegasus for a couple of years. I think I might concede a total of 200 goals in those two years. It was rubbish. I was waiting for the award. Did you go straight in as a goalkeeper? Yeah, because I... I because the, the, well, you were the last pick and everyone will have him, he goes in goal. Well, at, at school, funny enough, at school, um, I still remember it vividly. I mean, it's, it's sort of been printed on my head now. Um, middle of the football pitch on a school's games lesson. The ball's being passed everywhere around me. The guy behind me is letting the ball in. And I thought, well, I, I reckon I could do better than right. him. Caught one and everyone was like, wow, that's amazing. So I thought I'd better catch another one. And that kind of made me the goalkeeper. But were, were, you, were, you, were you a big lad? Were you? I was tall, yeah, yeah. You're six um, four now, right? Yeah, six five now. I'm, six, five. I haven't shrunk just yet. Okay, a few more years. Right. Yeah, I was tall. I think I was about five nine when I was ten years old. Well, that's tall, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> you should see yeah. the team logical photo position to him in goal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're not going to get much past him. But it's a strange position, isn't it? I mean, the goalkeeper. I mean, I, we'll we'll touch upon the vagaries and peculiarities of what makes a goalkeeper tick and how you function. Um, but there's a driving force behind. 
doing something and being good at it. And I'm trying to pick at the idea because I note that you talk about in certain aspects of your life, feeling a little bit of a loner or a little bit of an outsider. Mm. Um, did not having a father influence in your life shape the direction of wanting to excel in sports or find validation in sports or finding some sort of camaraderie or uh, belonging? What having not having a father did made me very competitive. Right. Um, Why? Because I could be good at something. It's strange. I think the the idea of being competitive is something that everyone wants your athlete to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and true. I mean, I used to I used to raise people down the street, even though they didn't know it. You know, the first one to the end of the shop, mm-hmm. and I would beat them. I was that kind of competitive yeah. person. The problem with it is, and it's interesting, you you're talking about the uh, the I say difficult upbringings. Yeah, I think there is some studies into whether because I was always sorry, forgive me. I was always on the under the impression that. Um, people with difficult upbringings had low self-esteem and that kind of drove them into a field, be it acting, singing or or mm-hmm. sport, because that's where they got their kind of affirmation, if you like. Um, there are studies into solid family backgrounds actually produce better athletes. Is that right? Indeed. When you look at yeah. uh, it's American sports in, in particular, you look at some of the, the top basketball players and uh, sportsmen there, they, they have these solid backgrounds. And it's essentially where when they've, come up against difficult moments they have the backdrop to be able to yeah. or the the infrastructure to be able to deal to with be it. able to support themselves through it yeah whereas if you're that highly competitive individual without someone helping you you it becomes very destructive but i'm I'm trying to get to the understanding of how back backgrounds create mm. guys like you that go to the top of their trade which is what you did <laughs> and again i think First of all, I, football was oh, excuse me. Football was by chance in the in the first instance. It, it's not to say I wouldn't have got in, involved in football, you know, two months later or, or a year later. Um, when I went to school again, because of the competitive side of me, I found my comfort in sport. Um, I would play. I think I represented the school at every sport uh, at least once. I mean, I even joined a chess team, even though I didn't know how to play chess. Um, there was always something for me to do. I was a gymnast at junior school. Um, I was the only boy in the gymnastics class. So you did gymnastics and Rio Ferdinand did ballet. Yeah, whatever. Well, for, for me, the, the, the lure for gymnastics were awards. Right. So I'd get an award. Validation. For, yeah. Validation. Um, yeah. I was in a boys' club where, you know, if you were the best after. A rhythmatic dance or whatever it was at the time um you would go up levels within the club so everything was award award driven shall i say and with football um although the main part of the season we were rubbish and finished bottom of the league or whatever there was always a five aside and i was just at five aside this weekend actually for uh for my local team um where you could win medals and you go into secondary school all of a sudden you know athletic season wow they would give you an award if you could run 100 meters under 14 seconds and right. a, a silver if you could do it under 12 whatever the thing was so i just started collecting all these awards and that was that was my happy place when we talk about your upbringing how would you describe it because i, I see a quote here about the nature of the geography of where you lived mm-hmm. in in hertfordshire and hatford hatfield and you talk about it because uh, society is very different and society's moved on, it's changed. But this quote is specific to the challenges that you might have had coming from a mixed heritage background, mm-hmm. um, where you talk about Hatfield was a white area, as far as I was aware. So a lot of conforming had to be done at a young age. If someone's being racially abusive towards you, you know straight away, generally speaking, if it's an issue of skin, color of skin or hair or anything like that, then it's obvious. But it seemed from my upbringing that everything was very, very subtle. Mm-hmm. So... That sort of experience, how did that play out for you in life and your experiences and the opportunities and also the attitude that you developed towards society and the challenges that you have in front of you? Did that form part of the need to get validation for achievement? But I, I had low self-esteem. Right. And that's what I'm yeah. I'm yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah. I mean this, this is from whenever I can remember. I mean, I, I, I was an able drawer. Right. Um, you know, drawing in school and someone going, oh, you copied that. And it kind of like, hang on, no, I didn't. And then it kind of dents you a little bit. Um, being asked if I was adopted by school uh, school classmates and then going home and not remembering what the word was and asking my mum if I was divorced, things like that. Right. And my mum going, oh, you can't be divorced, and just sort of laughing it off. Right. 
I didn't see racism, and I, I, you know, sort of bringing it fast forward to today. Um, racism, racism is obvious, of course. Yep. Um, well, some of it is. I didn't understand racism. I think is where that quote comes mm. from because I didn't have any reference points. It was me and my brother. Yeah. My brother's a year younger than me, so was, you know, we we couldn't talk to each other about our heritage or anything like that. My dad lived in Jamaica, never came over. Um, so I kind of naively ignorantly went through life uh in those younger years just dealing with things i mean you know growing up in in wellington city i moved to um sir frederick osborne's walking through the quadrant at school and you got your national front mm. bomber jacket lads mm. racially abused. well you knew that was racism mm. that was obvious because they were aiming at yeah. you um but again you know if i go on the field and throw the javelin further than anyone else, it kind of made the day all right. Negated that conversation to yeah. some extent, yeah. Everybody has somebody in their life that comes along and it's sort of like a lightning rod for them. Mm -hmm. Would you say, or someone that really concentrates their mind or gets to grips with them or gives them their raison d'etre to some extent, would you say Tom Wally was that character <laughs> Tom. at Watford? Oh, man. Uh, I love Tom. He... He was, uh, I mean, his his ways, I would argue, would not be acceptable today Tell me. in football. No, because he was he was uh, this wonderful Welshman who used every swear word possible, right, okay. threatened you all the time without doing anything in a way that he'd go, all right. And we would laugh about it. But at the same time, he was so sincere um, that he became a father figure to me and a, a lot of the young lads at Watford. He was a youth team coach, right? Youth team coach at Watford. And yeah, he just, he drove me to want to be better and and in a way I always said if I didn't play football because there was a the defining moment in my career I have to say this I, I, what became my career uh, when I was 15 years old because I was doing high jump and uh, again because of the um, difficulties we had financially as a uh, back at home you know I've gone off to Cosford the indoor athletics track to compete in a high jump competition um, I look like a I look like a vagrant my right. trainers had a big split around the front of them. Yeah. You know, I'm dressed all shabby. I didn't particularly do well. Were you aware of that? Did you, were you aware of that? No, no, that was, that was me. I, I had no choice. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was it. Um, I think I jumped 185. It wasn't even a particularly good day. But the guy took me up there, a friend of mine who was an uh, athletics coach. He said that the England high jump coach thought that I had the raw ability to potentially break the English high jump record. Okay. And I looked at it. Now, you've got to imagine that all the way through school, I'm just picking up these awards left, mm -hmm. right, and center for athletics, for athletics and stuff. And the idea of being a record holder was like amazing. Manna from heaven. Yeah, mm. I was also offered a YTS at Watford, right? Which I think was twenty four pounds seventy a week or something. Twenty seven pound fifty, apparently. Twenty seven pound fifty. Okay, threw yourself out of ten percent there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the the question: three years of hard work with athletics, no pay. Yeah. Essentially, to get this all elusive um, or exclusive, even record. And I, the question with the YTS was, do I get fed? And they said, yes. So I said, all right, I'll play football. Okay. And that was it. Right. Did you have anyone else behind you saying which way to go? Was oh, no, no. Given, it, was, no it, was, it was just completely your own choice. Because at 15, you left home and moved into Diggs, didn't you? Yeah. Um, was that daunting an experience for you? A change of direction, a change of circumstances, or we just took it in your stride? Not uh, at first; it was fine. The only issue I had was where I was going to find a place to smoke. <laughs> okay, I was on right between ten and okay. twenty a day, so it was kind of like you know to get out the good job you're bleeding goalkeeper, with them, wasn't it? Because yeah. <laughs> I've got a quote here from Tom Wally, which I quite like actually, because I think it's quite blunt. He talks about you. He talks about he wasn't the sort of player you could miss. He already had the size, the agility, and hands like shovels. Rattled his ear holes big time. He was just bottling along. I said to him, listen, you big bugger. If you want to be part of this club, you have to listen and be disciplined, be on time, want to work, make sure your schoolwork is done right. That sounds like a bloody good influence. How did you take that at the time? Well, it, yeah. Um, so my, my late stepfather uh, phoned Tom up, telling him I was smoking. Right. And my understanding was if you smoked at Watford, you got chucked out. Okay. So um, he phoned up. Tom, Tom got me in the room and I thought I was going to get chucked out and effectively that's what he said. But that was Tom. He was verbally very hard. You know, there was no no messing with his words, but um, we just understood that Tom meant best for us and uh, he was right. I was always late, distracted, 
I think as I said moving into digs was fine to start with because it was just the next the next stage after a while that became difficult I think I try to accept it but I think it was just a complete change in life from living with my family to, to and, yeah. and, and fi financially I think the probably I'm letting in letting out too much here um first first year apprentices always have like a little financial handout from parents. So yeah from whom from their parents you know because yeah, okay. you, you know what well, you get paid a month later don't you yeah. You don't get paid before you start work yeah so that first month i didn't have any money and uh you know it's kind of like running from garston to watford to get in on time on a lot of occasions so yeah you've been portrayed in the media and I have a view of the media, I'm sure you do too, that some of the portrayals are just nonsense and vacuous, but you've been portrayed in the media as being an atypical footballer, um, whether that's the fact you, you're interested in art, you're penchant for collectible toys, or a slightly more pointed observation that you're one of only a few a few black goalkeepers. Does that Does that resonate with you? Do you feel any different as a result of that sort of assimilation about you? I, I was, I was unaware. I mean, I'm unaware of uh, of a lot of commentary with regards to my career because I didn't read a lot. I stopped reading stuff basically. Yeah, I just don't didn't blame you sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm very interested in a lot of things. Um, very obsessive, not OCD, but obsessive. did you stop reading things because of this issue? I don't know how far it carries into your life about the low self esteem or the need for validation. I suppose when you again, if you're talking about the sort of development and establishment of a career, the initial drivers will definitely change over a course of time. And uh, I think where I was a young kid getting awards for my athleticism, whatever, um, all of a sudden became it became a job. And I, I remember the kind quite clearly that the day that I first got paid, even though I'd walked probably around to the training ground, I stopped being someone who just did this for the love of it. I was getting paid, therefore there was a responsibility. Um, the, the drives were still there. I was trying to be perfect. Um, I was trying to break records. And the people talking about me at the time didn't understand why I was doing. But at the same time, we weren't having conversations. There was a dialogue going on or a narrative being created. Um, then when you start maturing and looking at things in a different light, you kind of think, actually, what am I fighting against here? Um, one anecdote that I... I loved one of my teammates at Liverpool was opening his fan mail in the changing room at the, the training ground next to another teammate. And you could physically see his body change when he was opening positive fan mail. Right. Negative. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. And he goes, soft ass is reading his fan mail. And I'm like, well, if you don't like what you're reading, why are you reading? Why are you reading? Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the end, I used to read all my fan mail. I used to sign and send off whatever it was every time. I rarely got any bad fan mail. Um, but when it came to the press, and that was a different thing, or the yeah. media, it was kind of like, what is the narrative here? Well, the one, the one that got me in, in particular was uh, after the second Newcastle 4-3. Um, we walked in and, I, you know, I, I'm an honest person. They said, oh, Dave, what do you think about the game? Because I let in three, two, two really bad goals. Uh, even though we won four three, and I said, "Oh yeah, I've talked to Joe, and you know, I thought I could have done better." The headline next day: James fears for his England place. It's right. like, yeah, okay, yeah. here we go. Yeah, that's the me doing it. Do you think goalkeepers tend to be mavericks? Do you think there's an element of that about being a goalkeeper? You've got Jans Lehmann, who's an interesting character. You've got Kepper at Chelsea, and the things that have gone with him. You've got Peter Schmeichel, Wait, Oliver what's, Kahn. What's gone with Kepper? Well, I suppose when you look at this behaviour on the pitch in the League Cup final, where wow, he decided... Okay, see, well, tell me. This, I mean, this, I, this fascinates me, right? Um, do I think, uh, for answer the question first, I don't think that goalkeepers are anywhere near as maverick as they used to be. See, I remember watching John Burridge when I was a kid. Doing handstands. Doing handstands at Palace, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And his whole personality was one steeped in, in, in eccentricity. Yeah, and you, you don't see, and I, I don't think you see that anymore. Um, is that because we've lost characters from the game, or it's just because? I, I think in say, part. I think yeah. I think in part a lot of um, uh, the, I wouldn't say need. I think the individual characters are, I think have been taken out of players at a very early age. The way that the system is now, right. you know, if you show the wrong traits as a youngster, you're probably less likely to be. Old. I just got to defend Kepper here. Go ahead. This was a communication breakdown between a manager and a player. 
And uh, that specific event, Kepper went down injured about two minutes earlier. Mm -hmm. And then the physio runs on and deals with him. Two minutes later, they put him up, yeah. uh, told him to bring him off. And he's like, no, I'm okay. But there was a point where... There well, there was, was a point where the manager said, look, like, if, we, do, if we got still three, want you off, yeah. Yeah, but the, the, the rules of the game, the player doesn't have to come off the field. If, if he wants to be... If no, the, no, if the, the player does not have to leave the field. What? If if you're being substituted... You do not have to leave the field. Yeah, but Davis. I know, but the point is that Kepper has just two minutes many earlier... Many things players don't have to Two do. minutes earlier, Kepper has, has gone down as if he was injured. Yeah, but you can't defend that. You can't say because there's a rule that suggests that you can go into a restaurant... No, 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 no. There's no, a rule sorry. in life you can go into a restaurant and not pay, the, not pay the bill if you don't feel like the food was valuable to it. But the point is, if you are a manager of a football team and you need to have some sort of authority over your players, and if you've decided, rightly or wrongly that a player's got to come off, mm. then you can't pull that one out however, of the and say he doesn't have to come off. However, with a few minutes left in a cup final, where emotions are all over the place, the fact that they haven't had a communication beforehand to, to let him understand that he will come off to let Caballero go and goal. There was a point when the manager's running down the touchline and well, tell telling the physio, him to go get back off. on. Yeah. <laughs> there was a point where you're defending the indefensible yeah. there. Uh, well, I, do, I still think that Kepper seems to be the uh, the scapegoat for this when there was an opportunity for No, the, I just use it. In, I was using it to substantiate the argument <laughs> and debate that you goalkeepers are a bunch of loons no, and no, that you're no, mavericks no, no, no. and that there's an eccentricity. And I think and I think it doesn't mean that um, I think maverick doesn't mean somebody that isn't inclusive or someone that isn't capable of being part of a group. I think it's someone that's quite unique. And yeah, someone um, that has different outlooks and dispositions and different approaches to life because often the task that you guys have to fulfill is a very different one. Mm -hmm. You have to live with the consequences. If you make a mistake, it's a goal. It's a consequence. It's immediate. It's the ultimate outcome in football. Mm -hmm. If somebody else makes a mistake, it can have several other passages of play and several other situations that manifest itself before it delivers an outcome. Mm -hmm. So the pressure and the expectation and the and the, and the 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 lack of forbearance for mm. a goalkeeper is far more significant and that must play on the mindset of a goalkeeper um do you think maverick is a negative no 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 no, no no but i think there was uh, I, I i had i felt this for i, I want to say a while whatever however you define a while you would look across the Premier League, let's say when I was playing or, or years yeah. before that, and all the, there was a clear difference between one goalkeeper and another in some way or form. It was kind of like you, you could tell who you've got, um, some with tremendous attributes in one area, some with tremendous in another. I think there's a quite prosaic look around about goalkeepers in professional football now, um, and I think that needs to change. What do you mean by that? You basically put one in... You know, one in one goal or one in another is they're going to do the same thing. You think that's the case? I, I, th I think even the, with the evolution that people like Pep Guardiola have brought into goalkeeping and the change of direction and how how much a component that's part one of a team. goalkeeper that's one thing. But it's beginning to per permeate, isn't it? I mean, we'll talk about the evolution of goalkeeping. I, well, yeah, yeah, and, 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 and uh, the fact that David de Gea is coming under pressure because uh, you know potentially, allegedly, Ten Hag wants him to play in a certain way. Play out the back. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the skill set, and I, I say this respectfully because in the end, I, you know, for every goalkeeper who is still playing at the moment, they're asked to do something. And in the end, if you want the maverick, he's going to do something different and something different doesn't help the team, supposedly. Um, you know, it's not difficult to receive a ball and pass it to one of your teammates. I wouldn't uh, have thought so. Effectively, that is yeah. playing, at, you know, playing with your feet. I, Come I, on. I, I would have thought so. I mean, <laughs> I, I was going to address this later on in our discussion, but I've opened the door to it. So I might as well talk to you about the specifics and the evolution of a goalkeeper. Can you pick the differentiation between the mentality and the personality of a goalkeeper and that of outfield players? The difficulty is what, what a lot of guys, and rightly so, have developed is the ability to not show any emotion on a football field. Right. Um, I think this was, and again, you know, sort of thing about my upbringing. <clears throat> if I wasn't happy, I wasn't happy. Uh, if I wasn't happy in a warm-up, then I would tell the guy doing my warm-up that I wasn't happy. Yeah, I think that's what uh, I heard. Yeah. Um, you talked about not showing emotion. Uh, um, and I'm just going to leap in there and talk about Jordan Pickford because uh, he's the polar opposite of that, isn't he? Yeah. Um, I don't know Jordan personally, so um, I can only speak from what I see. There's a question whether the emotion or whether it's, it's part of the theatrics. Um you know, like a, a reflex, if you like, you know, f f actually being emotional about something and um, 
showing your unhappiness thing. I think you can you can separate to a point. And the, what I always say with when I watch Jordan Pickford is, especially for England, you know, if this guy's going emotional behind you, everyone in front of him knows that he's doing it. Mm. Everyone on that England team knows what he's doing. And it's the moment that he stops doing it is when they get worried. Right. You know, this has been an exceptional goalkeeper for England. Because it was the observation about Joe Hart as well, wasn't it? That Joe was a little bit like that and a little bit out of control in a couple of the England games where people saw him in the tunnels and thinking, the hell that kind of behaviour? You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're looking like you're not in control of yourself and that doesn't fill people with any confidence. Well, we all want, I think I say we, um, in football, all you want is consistency. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah. And if you're consistently <laughs> going yeah, mad... Being you. consistently, be, yeah, I get that, yeah. Razor, yeah. Razor was the best at Liverpool. I used to be shouting at him non-stop, non-stop. And if he stuck his finger up at me, then I knew he heard me. Yeah, I didn't need him to turn around and say, "Jamie, what you're saying is right." I just needed a response. And once he said, "I'm like, oh, cool," and Neil was consistent at Palace, consistently in the canteen. That's where Neil was consistent there. Okay, don't worry, <laughs> I'll say it to him, so you're not going to be betraying <laughs> yeah. any confidences or relationships with friends. Talking about playing out from the back, being good with your feet, mm -hmm. and you just talked about it in the in the most basic of terms. Because I I'm a bit like you, I think in the fact that I think there's a lot of mythologies being deployed for Absolutely. football now. People talking in, in these highfalutin terms that gives them an opportunity to justify their existence in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, do you think you, as a goalkeeper, would thrive in... I mean, you, what, you've been what, you've been finished now for about 13, 14 years. Wow. That, right, isn't it? Well, you finished when you were 39, well, nine didn't you? years ago, actually, but yeah. Yeah, okay, in Premier League football. Oh, no, 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 that's fine, that's fine, yeah. that's fine. All right. I did, did, um, slightly dismissed as Bristol City. No, all right, due Bournemouth, respect. But yeah, fair IBB enough. Yeah, I, mean, I, 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 I don't particularly okay. like Steve Lansdowne, so I'm quite happy to be dismissive of Bristol City. Um, but as I said, could you think you would thrive under the current perception of goalkeepers and what they've got to do? Because Edison is quite remarkable, isn't he, in terms of his ability to distribute a ball. I mean, he is as good as any player I've seen knocking 50-yard balls to where people want them. I go back to Paul Barron. Um, he got a kicking coach in uh, Aston Villa. Right. And I said, why do I need a kicking coach? I can kick the ball 60, 70 yards anyway. I went with a kicking coach and after two sessions, he revolutionised the way I played football. Left foot, right foot. I was picking players out 50 yards, right. 60 yards. Um, we weren't asked to play out the back because the teams I played in didn't play that kind of football. And what people don't understand, um, and Jordan Pickford made it very clear to me once after analysing his game once, um, when he was at Sunderland, is that it's not just about the goalkeeper being able to pick a baller. Because it is very simple. You pass the ball to me, I pass the ball over there. Yeah, That's not difficult. I'm not being asked to pick the ball up, do a step over and take you on mm. or anyone on. Just get it and pass someone else. If the person you're passing to is not good on the ball, yeah. you're going to lose possession and concede yeah. goals. And as Jordan said, I can't pass to my defenders because they're no good on the ball, so he kicks the ball long. Right. So I could have learned how to play but I would have needed a team around me that would have been able to play. And this so is where Edison becomes very good because he can pass to any one of his fullbacks, yeah. centre-backs. They're as good as midfielders. So he's in a fortunate position, isn't he? He's so got your the right answer, team around him. So, your answer is, so is the answer to the question, Yes, I would is have. that a goal... First of all, yes, you could, <laughs> but a goalkeeper's ability to play out is only as good as the people he's playing out to. Absolutely. So it's an unfair analysis to talk about goalkeeper's inability to play out. It's a cheap cliche, which yeah. people don't even think about when they use. Right. Hmm. because obviously the observations have been made recently because I've sort of pushed back on it and, and suggested that I think coaches should coach coach, and if a player can't do something, they should be coached in to be able to do it because Absolutely. actually totally there's a right. level of natural ability and then there's a level of discipline which gets you to the next level. Right? Totally. And if David De Gea, Pep Guardiola, if David De Gea was playing for Pep Guardiola, Pep Guardiola would make him play out from the back rather than all of a sudden well, go back to the... No, no, he wouldn't. Joe Hart. Well, I was going to ask you about that because if 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 the argument is that Joe Hart, if, if the argument is that the, cent the defenders at Man City were good enough to be able to receive a ball and ultimately the goalkeeper had that luxury, why was Joe Hart just bomb? Well, uh, um, I will defend Pep simply because he's just won a treble. <laughs> yeah, it's an easy defence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, plus yeah. a few other trophies yeah. on the way. Um, and his decision, therefore, as we sit here, is it was always correct. Um, I think Joe was an opportunity to 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 show that he was the boss. Do you? I, I think so more than anything because, it, again, there's a it's, it's slightly paradoxical, isn't it, that um, Pep turns all these players into something different and more magnificent, something better. 
Yes, yeah. or magnificent so, in John Stones's case. Um, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah. And better in Jack Grealish's. Yes. Yeah. Yet Joe Hart wasn't given an opportunity. England number ones. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, I mean, again, this is all subjective. But you're a goalkeeper. You know what is a good goalkeeper and what's not. And you I know like the current. I like the currentness of what you just said after the back of soccer aid. But go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> still Blimey, a goalkeeper. How did you let that one in from um, your same bolt? We didn't practice one on ones. Come on. <sighs> He didn't know where it was going, did he? That's why. I know. I've seen you back and I was like, oh my goodness. Where do you rank Pickford, Ramsdale, Pope and Dean Henderson? Um, Henderson hasn't played enough football, so therefore he's out the, out right. the equation. Um, Jordan Pickford, I think, has been exceptional for England. Yeah, I like him. People talk about the way that he plays for Everton as if he couldn't play for Man United, Arsenal, Tottenham or whatever. Um, his England performances are like playing for the best team in the country. Yeah. So he can do it for so it's an comparison is what you're saying. And if you look at Ramsdale, mm. who I do like. I thought you might say that. He, at Bournemouth and Sheffield United, two relegations, he goes to a better team and all of a sudden he becomes a better goalkeeper, mm. which is an argument that should be used for Jordan Pickford. Yeah, it's an unfair comparison. Isn't yeah. it? If you're not playing in front of a particularly proficient defensive unit, you're going to be put in a way of more challenges. Yeah. And then subsequently there's going to be more outcomes that are not in favour of people making the argument that you're the better goalkeeper. Indeed. Yeah. Um, as I say, I like Ramsdale a lot. I, I even look, and again, we're talking about taming down in these Mavericks and characters. I think there was a lot of character about Aaron Ramsdale. I do too. Sheffield United. Yeah, I and too, I, yeah. I, I thought so yeah. at Bournemouth. I think that character's been watered down tremendously. Oh, he's still got Arsenal. a little bit about him though, hasn't he? You see him a few altercations this season. We had to get a little. Was it an altercation with Tottenham fans? No, no, he didn't know. He, he refused to have the altercation. He turned no, his he back and walked them. away. Uh, he gave it to them first. Okay. Yeah, I, he did. I, I seem to remember, and I, I was admiring yeah. the fact that he. No, didn't. he restrained himself from getting involved in, yeah. in, the, yeah. in the idiot that tried to kick him on the back of the shoulder. But prior to that, I think he'd turned to the fans and given them um, oh, okay. a little bit right. of his I, opinion I, on what I, their, some of their barracking might be. So if you're forced into a position, which for the purpose of this conversation you are, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which one of them would you come out with? If you were saying, right, well, okay, this is me, I'm managing this team, and so I've England got an opportunity play- to get the best goalkeeper, who are you getting? I'm the, if I'm the goalkeeping coach, yep. and I'm good friends with the manager, who's you, mm-hmm. well, you can be the owner if you want. Um, <laughs> Did that job, wasn't much fun. <laughs> Just being the manager. Yeah. I would go for Aaron Ramsdale. I thought you might. Yeah, And the reason being, I think there's a, a bigger scope to his capabilities. Mm. The guy can distribute. Yeah, But what he can do, which he doesn't do as often now for some reason, he can dominate aerially. I mean, the right. guy can run and catch balls. And it's kind of like, I'd get him to do that more. Right. If he dropped one in 10, I'd say fine. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about um, probably the most monumental move of your career, your transfer from Watford to Liverpool. It's an interesting period of time for you because you've gone into Liverpool at a time where Liverpool, the previous years, had won six out of ten trophies. You go there between 92 and 95. And I spoke to Sunes about it the other day, talking specifically about you. And I'll tell you what he said in a minute. And you win one trophy, you win the League Cup. Hmm. And then you've got this moniker that probably drives you mad and probably you don't like, which is the Calamity James Monica, where the mistakes that you're you're made that you make are amplified by the media and turned into something possibly more than you think is fair for them to have made. And and I'll go to what Sunes said about you, because I, you know, I'm, I'm very fond of Graham, and Graham is obviously, as we know, probably you know better than I do, president of his own fan club, and he's also not backward about coming forward and telling other people <laughs> what their deficiencies are. And he talked about John Barnes being a big disappointment to him and not being the player that he thought John Barnes was going to be. Mm-hmm. And then he talked to me about signing you and the fact that he believed that you had the potential to be the best goalkeeper in the world and that your challenge in doing that, he, he didn't think you achieved it during his time there. But then again, Graham went out of Liverpool with one of the worst win records. So mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure he covered himself in much glory there during that period of time. But he attributed a lot of that to what was going on between your ears rather than what was going on with you as a goalkeeper with the capabilities that you had mm-hmm. and your inability, I think, to over... He, he, he compared you to Grobbler. Grobbler made as many mistakes as you did, but was able to get over them and not carry these mistakes in the same way that you did. But shall we talk about that in, in the rounds? Yeah, it's interesting because the the references to Liverpool and, and performance are always quite negative. 
Because um, it, was it wasn't a particularly achievement-based time no, for no, Liverpool, comparative, comparative to what Liverpool were Correct. and have yeah. been about. Which is um, what the same Man United players will, fit, will have experienced over the last 10 years. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's one of these weird things. And, uh, the downside and, and of transferring to an iconic football club, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to say that it was um, it was a great period of time, without doubt. The comparison with other clubs would be, actually, you, you know, look at Tottenham. <laughs> Yeah, of course, but I Liverpool think would have Tottenham. taken those seven years and one trophy. Granted, but, anyway. <laughs> but, but Liverpool were Liverpool, weren't they? Yeah. What do you? I mean, what do you think about the observation that Souness has made? It's for him to make it, and it's, it's thirty years after the fact, isn't it? But it's not notwithstanding, it's still relevant to you and your journey, and the observations that were made about you. Because I'm looking at um, reports on you and this nickname that will probably get right on your nerves because it's a very lazy nickname. It's very easy to go to, which is Calamity James. And I know we've had this in a conversation before and I felt that you bristled when I mentioned it in a mm. conversation once upon a time on a different platform. But Graham talked about the fact that he didn't think you got to the levels you could have got to because of what was going on in between your ears, which is the psychological battle that mm. you're having yourself. And I, I'm reading something here which seems really strong for someone to be writing, but maybe they thought it was a fair analysis. And it says, hopelessly committed, stranded, embarrassingly in no man's land, couldn't catch a cold. Did those, did those sort of things, I mean, I know you said to me, well, I didn't read them. Mm. And then I've got Sunis over here saying you, you had this propensity to not overcome adversity or to allow it to affect you. When you look back on retrospect, do you think that was true? Or do you think that was just, that's an overthought on their part? Well, the guys to the report, you can't comment on that. They no, write what they again, write, can you? It's yeah. one of the uh, Moneyball was my favourite book, one of my favourite books, and that sounds just like the, a Moneyball scenario. You, yeah. you use a lot of words to describe nothing. Um, <laughs> with regards to the the performance, the, the problem that I had again, I'm, I'm sort of chasing perfection. The it's this this place that doesn't exist, but someone will tell you whether or not you're close to it, even though it doesn't exist. Again, slightly uh, paradoxical. Did it bother me? I'll tell you what bothered me was the fact that they were allowed to call me it because of my own performances. And that was that was the thing that frustrated me. Who was allowed me. to call you it? The, the media. Right. And then, and, and, you know. But you don't uh, read the media. Your, sorry? You don't read the media. You, it was funny you do thing. read the media. Yeah, no, yeah, we all yeah, read no, the no, I, media. I, I would, I would, right. It's an interesting thing about newspapers. If you don't read them, someone will tell you what's going oh, Of course. <laughs> yeah, I'm being facetious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but the again the the frustration was that I was I was not playing to a level that I thought I should be playing at. I agree with Graham soon. This is not I'm not going to say that I thought think I should have been the best goalkeeper in the world. No, that's what I was saying. I could, you. Yeah. yeah, I can't think of anything that any other goalkeeper has done that I couldn't do. Right, if that makes sense. Right, and therefore the more times you do it, then arguably you can put yourself in a position where people could talk to you about you in that light. Um, so why did the calamity, James? So because it, it, it bothered me get rid because, of it. because I couldn't. And this is how bizarre it is. The Newcastle game occurred 4-3. Um, I did an interview with a, a, a reporter who I thought was a friend. Uh, we sat in the car outside the training ground. And um, my friend Colin Jackson, uh, back then. The runner. The hurdler. Yeah, yeah. hurdler. He, yeah. he talked about how his coach wouldn't allow him to play the PlayStation on a, uh, a competitive day. Right. Because it takes away nervous energy. Okay. So I'm sat in a car and I'm like, yeah, you know, my friend Colin, he, uh, I play the PlayStation. I might sit there for three or four hours a day. Right. Is this where the observation comes about your inability to concentrate because you played Nintendo? Well, possibly. He's writing for one of the, the broadsheets, um, which was being printed on Friday night, 11 o'clock, I believe. And <laughs> I went home, told my then wife, oh, yeah, I just had a chat. This is what I said. Phone him up, tell him to take it out because she knew that that wouldn't go down well. Mm. Media-wise, I make a phone call. Oh, it's too late. It's gone to print. And then it's picked up by the red redheads. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And then Saturday, I, I awaken to a Nottingham Forest game. Bleepers keepers. James addicted to PlayStation. Mm. It's like, I'm not addicted to it. I'm just talking about it. So all these things um, culminated in sort of bad performance. There, there's me lack of understanding of what's going on. I'm not playing particularly well. I was out of the team for about eight months in my second uh, second season. I got sent off against Norwich at the end of the first season, which wasn't good, two, uh, two, two three games before the end of the season. So I actually missed the first game of the season. Didn't get back inside uh, underground soonest. Um, reached 17 stone. 17 stone. It's big, is, right? Oh. But that was muscle with you, was it? No, I was fat. You were fat. I'm right, not sure okay. if you're allowed to say the word fat, but I was fat. Well, 
Um, I weighed myself and went. I'm seven. I've never been, never ever been 17 stone. I think I joined Liverpool at 15 and a half, whatever. And I just thought I need to change because I'm not in the first team. And I approached the club doctor and I said, "Do you know a sports psychologist?" And he quietly said, "Look, Liverpool don't believe in that sort of thing, but I, I'll find someone." I had a chat with this guy. He got him to come around the house. We sat in my kitchen for two hours talking about you know, what's going on. And in a nutshell, and this is the bit that is really surprising. I know even when I mention it now, I, I'm surprised. Um, what seems to be the problem? He's, this guy's not a footballer. He's a sci- sport. Mm, sports psychologist, yeah. So I believe. Yeah. I said, oh, you know, crosses. So you believe. So having a problem with crosses. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he said, uh, when was the last time you practiced crosses? <laughs> Simple question. And I'm like, Oh, we haven't done any crossing practice for a while. It was probably a couple of weeks. And he said, well, maybe you need to practice more crosses. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, good shout. Anyway, so two hours go by. The guy leaves my kitchen. And I'm, I wasn't one for inviting people into my house, um, private space and all that. I go into, into work next day. Doc, that sports psychologist was amazing. He said he wasn't a sports psychologist. <laughs> I don't know what he did. But he wasn't a sports psychologist. But the two-hour conversation, I, I, li- I likened it to sitting on a park bench with a stranger, mm. having that con- and just letting all the, the crap get off your off your chest or out of your head. And it, things changed. So what I understood was the reason these people were having to go at me was basically because I wasn't being the professional that I should have been, i.e. working on my trade. Right. So when they're calling you Calamity James, when they're saying you're, you're addicted to Xbox, when they're saying you're rubbish, couldn't catch cold and all that stuff, it's kind of like, yeah, but I know I can, but I, why aren't why aren't I why doing, I doing it? to improve it? Yeah. So you do the work. So what work. was the um? What was the um? The Aston Villa sports psychologist. Yeah. Well, no. What was oh. the imagery? What is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so Keith Bauer. So we um, I we had a sports psychologist come into Villa uh, for the cup final against Chelsea. I thought it was interesting. Um, then he asked me if I wanted to do some one-on-one stuff. He said I was receptive to it. I suppose that's what most psychologists do, especially yeah. when you pay the bills. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, Keeps you coming back, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. But um, I was, and I, I enjoyed it. And essentially, I did a lot of um, imagery work. Well, what is it? So is it your brain, something your brain, and then thus you can do it? Well, think of a lucid dream. Yeah. You know it's a dream, but at the time it's real. Yeah. So your your mind struggles to differentiate between dreams and reality. Reality, yeah. So if you imagine, you could sit there, and I, 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 my preferred place was a shower because it had tiles. Um, I'd get a shower pre-match, and I would use each different tile as a different position as a shot was coming in, catch cross, da da and I'd be there for 20 minutes, sort of diving, not diving around the, shower, the bathroom or yeah. shower, but in my mind, physically going through all these actions because the more your mind thinks it's done it, yeah. the easier it is for your body to do it. Okay. So, yeah, I did. Did and it work? It, it, absolutely. Yeah. Oof. Be catching crosses on traffic lights. It was great. Well, it's, you know, you got thirty seconds just to catch a couple of crosses. So, but it did. It genuinely worked, and the, it was even better. I mean, I, I took it to another level. I said to him, "I, I imagine making mistakes," and he goes, "Why do you do that?" Because it's supposed to be all sort of positive confirmation and reinforcement and stuff. And I said, "Because if I imagine making a mistake, then I have to work out what it is I need to do for that not to happen." For that not to happen. Being Damn. slightly obsessive. Well. I think sometimes you have to be to be successful. I think you have to be dedicated and focused. And some people will confuse that with obsession. Mm. But I think if you if you see something that you know you can improve, and then you focus on improving it, some people that don't have the disciplines to want to achieve the outcomes will, will categorise that as obsession. Mm-hmm. Villa, you moved to Villa. There's um your 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 teammate who's now the England manager. And we'll talk about him in a minute in regards to England. Talked about this as a period of redemption for you. Is what your mate said. Uh, when people leave a club like Liverpool, they either want to rebuild or they're on a downward spiral. Straight away, it was clear that David wanted to put things right. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, I paraphrase the word redemption. Yeah, but that's what say, it means. Yeah. But that's what it means, isn't it? If you're going to put things right, you're redeeming yourself. Did, was that true? Was it redemption? No. Was it, it, yeah, well, yay and nay. And in the sense that I knew my time in Liverpool to run out, Gerard Hooley had come in. Um, Friedel was getting the nod. Yes, um, rightly so, because Brad was capable and tremendously professional. I was frustrated. Um, I'd been at the club for a while. So I moved on and it was kind of, I need to do this because I want to be an England goalkeeper again because I only played for England once when I was at Liverpool. 
Right. And at the age of 30, I was looking at my career. And I, as much as I say I never career planned, I had it in my head that when you reach 30, there you should know, be certain things you've achieved. Yeah. 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 So um, to go to Aston Villa was an opportunity for me to get back in the first team, opportunity for me to get back in the England team. So, so redemption could be a. So it, I suppose he's right in some respects, yeah. isn't he? West Ham to Man City, from Man City to Portsmouth, right? Yeah. Portsmouth, you win an FA Cup, one of the best moments of your career? Yeah. Yeah. People often ask me what my favourite club was. And I, I don't necessarily like, I, I think of them like my children yeah. in the sense that I don't have a favourite favourite. I think every one of them has had a, an, an influence on my life. And I think it's sort of the beginning here. You need bad times to appreciate the good. Portsmouth was the, the craziest four years in football. In four years, we got two cup finals. Yeah. Um, we played in Europe. And if you, every, not every, most Portsmouth fans that I speak to love the fact that we won the cup. We should have won the cup. We only played one Premier League team in the whole competition. That was Man United at Al Trafford, the most important game of that competition. To have AC Milan come to Fratton Park with Ronaldinho scoring annoyingly. Oh, yeah, for the fans. Annoying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for the that, fans. that was the thing. It was kind of, we did yeah. so many things in four yeah. years. Yeah. England, because you touched upon the fact that obviously going into Aston Villa, you wanted to make sure that you reignited your England career. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that. 53 caps for your country. Mm -hmm. When you look back on your England career, did you achieve what you should have done in the teams that you played for or played in? Uh, no, no. And again, I sort of go back to the point that one game in my 20s at Liverpool, 27 I think I was, um, and then 52 caps in my 30s. I think only Peter Shorten had more caps in his 30s than I did. Uh, it was the wrong way around in a lot of ways. Um, I stopped smoking in 2000 when I was at Aston Villa and went back to being an athlete. It was a right. weird thing. I always felt I could smoke and throw myself out. I could, you know, I, I couldn't run very far because I was more a sprinter than a uh, distance. But I decided to give up smoking and suddenly became an athlete again. I had a goalkeeping coach who believed in me, um, was also forward thinking with regards to training plans like the kicking coach and stuff mm. like that. Um, and I was, I look at it in retrospectively and think that had, had that athlete been ten years younger and eight years younger, even yeah, my Liverpool career, you'd have developed further, you'd have got more, or I would have developed quicker, whatever. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I mean, th th there's a lot that could have been different in a positive way. What about the generation that you played in? Because there's an argument. Of course, it went under the moniker of the golden generation. Why didn't they achieve what? There's an argument suggests that they could have achieved if they're being branded the golden generation is it because the players were overhyped is it because of the wrong managers at the wrong time no i think um I, I don't recall being called the golden generation at the time at the time i think this is a re retrospective framing of things i mean if we were the golden generation then this current lot must be platinum because they've achieved a lot more than we did yeah i know <laughs> so, so uh, without winning yeah, i get that yeah um you know, we weren't getting to finals. I, I'm not sure where the uh, the, the golden generation re in relation to performance. Is that because of the players? I think it was more of the, the fact of the the, the Beckhams, the notoriety yeah. of the players yeah. as as celebrities, mm. um, or perhaps of the fact that there was such a large um, contribution contribution from Manchester United. Manchester United were the best team in the world. Right. We weren't the best national team. I mean that that France team. Different levels. Yeah, absolutely. This this generation of um, England players, this current crop mm -hmm. under Gareth, are they better than the ones that you were part of? Yeah, how do you define better? I mean, with regards to their success, yes. Well, clearly they got a better goalkeeper for this generation. John Pickford, uh, absolutely. Yeah, great on crosses. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, the more, I mean, I, I think, and when we talk about change and we look at technical ability, I think the with this England team now, okay, let's, let's phrase it in a more. Would this England team beat our? Yeah, yeah. No, no. Would we? Would, would we beat them? them. Oh, of course, yeah. You would have done. Yeah, we would have had a. We would have had a plan for Harry Kane. Don't worry about that. Okay. All right. Interesting. England managers. Do you think Carl Walker is going to run past Ashley Cole? Yeah, I do actually. Yeah. Oh, you don't know how quick Ashley Cole was rapid. I do know how quick Carl Walker is though. I've got issues with Carl Walker's behaviour off the pitch in times, but I can't help but admire him as a player. I think he's the fastest thing I've ever seen. I mean, I, besides Kevin Mbappe. I'm jesting. I think if um, if we could play them in 2004, 
You'd that would be our best chance of getting anything out of them. Right. If we were to play in the day, no, not at all. I mean, they're, they're, technically, they're, they're oh, different levels are yeah, yeah. ridiculous. And fitness is another thing as well. These guys run for 90 minutes. Yeah. Hard, hard. Whereas in 2004, you know, it wasn't. Really? In 2004, you were quick for 60 minutes, then you got substituted. And then you right. were just requiring, relying more on talented players who were fit but not super fit. John Stones. I mean, come on. Mm. Yeah, I know. Can you imagine Sol Campbell running up and down a field for 90 minutes? Mm. Or Sol could. Because Sol can do everything, can't he? Uh, <laughs> except get a management job. Um, no, that's not nice, is it? That's not nice. Um, I'm going to finish our little discussion on Gareth Southgate. Do you think... Um, I have views on Gareth. I don't think they're going to chime with yours. Do you think he's been underappreciated? As England manager, obviously. Not as Middlesbrough manager. It'd be difficult to underappreciate that. Got you European final. Um, there is a swell of people that are not having him, that think that they're that they're, and I'm one of them, by the way. Uh, and I'll tell you the reasons why in a second. Um, and that he doesn't have the courage to win games and make big decisions when the moments happen, and to change. He lets things happen to us rather than affects outcomes before they happen. Croatia semi-final, winning the game at, at, in the first half, comfortably in control of the game. The Croatians get better, we don't change, and eventually they take the game away from us. Mm -hmm. Same against Italy. We are, we're not in control of the game, but we've scored the first goal. We have an opportunity to do something about controlling the game. We don't. The Italians get on top and we don't change. We don't change. We don't change. We don't change. They score. Then we change. Mm -hmm. The French game. We've got ourselves back in the game. Um, we've, you know, we've not turned up for the first 20 minutes. We've suddenly realised that the French are there to be gotten at as well. We suddenly, the players on the, on the pitch apply themselves, raise their game, believe this is a game they can win, score, get hold of the game, but we don't go after it. And then the French change, we don't change, and go behind. I know that the Harry Kane penalty makes a difference, mm. but notwithstanding that, the, semi, the, the penalty shootout against Italy where we put players to take penalties that haven't taken them before. So uh, I, that's all my opinion, but the question was, do you think he's underappreciated, given I've just said all of that? And there's a lot of people that think that too. Well, first of all, a lot of people um, is very subjective and very misleading in the basis that, on the basis that a lot of people who support him, it, it doesn't necessarily mean the masses. No, I get um, that, but there's a fair enough people to make it an opinion. There's, there's, enough, noisy, there's, there's yeah. enough noisy people. To, are, are you looking give, at me when you're saying well, that? Well, I am, but just given okay. what you said and how you've described oh. your your lack of fondness towards Gareth. However, that doesn't make you wrong. One thing I always think with football, which is very, very difficult for people in football, is that in defeat or lack of win, dare I say, any plausible answer or alternative is acceptable as the reason why they didn't win. Oh, but there's winners and losers, David. There, there, and there's and, only and, one. And there's, yeah. the point is there's only one in any competition. Yeah. And when they're there to be won, and when I go back to the point that, you know, Gareth has got semi-final and final success from playing a certain way with a group, a certain group of players. You'd have loved the draws. You playing for an England side that had the draws that we've had in the last three tournaments. Well, Beaten no one that we shouldn't be. This is the platinum generation. Beaten no one that we shouldn't be. Lost to everyone that we could possibly. Which is, which is, which is pretty standard fare for, for England unless you don't qualify for the tournament in the first place. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that because you don't get the success, then all of a sudden the reason was this, and your view will be slightly different to someone else who might not be favourable to Gareth, um, and it will be just as plausible because without it actually having been done, then it could always have been the thing that should have been done. And there's always something... But that there is a difference, been... isn't there, David, between those that can and those that can't, and those that win and those that don't. Mm -hmm. And there's that moment, that bit of alchemy, that little decision-making process that an elite manager will make and take that will change the direction, that will make the decision at the right time to produce the outcome. Mm -hmm. The Croatians did it in 2018. Mm -hmm. the, um, the Italians did it in 2021. Although the margins are there, they're very small, and I get so, that. So what did Italy do that was fundamentally different to England then? Well, England, given their champions in England, well, I think they realised where England were getting at them, and they made changes and they adapted to what England were doing. And Luke Shaw was getting a lot of space, and they adapted to that. And they evened up the balance on the pitch, and they made certain changes that Mancini took control of the game, and he made decisions at key times. Mm -hmm. Whereas Gareth waited and waited and waited and waited and waited, and everyone was sitting there. And by the way, I've no issue with Gareth. I think I think he's a decent fellow. 
I think he, in fact, embodies most of the decent principles in life that you'd want somebody in positions of influence to have. But I'm in the I'm in the business of wanting to win. Yes, I want I, to win. I don't want to come. You show me a, a you know a loser. You show me a good loser. I'll show you a loser. I want to win. And if you're in a position where you've got an opportunity to do so, you've got to evaluate let, why that happens. Uh, First time around, you give him a pass. You go tell you what, Croatia, give you a pass because you're a New England manager. You're learning on the job, and you know what? You could have changed it. You should have changed it, but you didn't. And next time around, you will. And then we get to the European Championships final uh, in a home, almost a home nations. Mm -hmm. uh, against most of the sides that we could and should beat, mm -hmm. against a depleted German side that we're beginning to see really is a, a quite a poor German mm -hmm. side. And all of that, and yet when our moment comes, yet again, the same accusations can be levied. Yeah, and, and as I said to you, you know, Two so it doesn't come from a biased yeah, position, yeah, mate. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't come from that position no, for yeah, me. But, but two penalties in uh, in different positions, and we win it. And then all of a sudden, everything that Gareth did was perfect, which obviously wasn't the case if the penalties don't go. The, the, the point I go back to here is, or I'm going to bring up here, is that environmentally, what Gareth has set up with that England squad, and given the likes of Jordan Pickford have been there from the beginning of, yeah. uh, of Gareth. Um, environmentally, you mean culturally? Co yes. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah. yeah um, for him to do something fundamentally different with regards to the way that he plays, I would argue would go against everything they've set up environmentally. Otherwise, he'd have been doing this from the beginning. Does that make sense? No. Oh, so you, I've not been in the camp. I, I can only sort of pick bits up. Um, they're all together on this and they go out and they do their best within a structure. So whether it's holding the ball, whether it's passing to Carl Walker, whether it's doing this, whether it's doing that, everything's got kind of done in a structure tactically um, on the pitch. And therefore... For him to ask them to do something different, unless you're on about having a, a, a different uh, tactical approach to the game, given that you've got the players good enough to do the original thing the right way, kind of goes against... But when what... there's moments, and the French game, the game was there. Mm -hmm. It was there. The French were, were uh, in a difficult position. We were in ascendancy. You need to go after the game. You need mm -hmm. to be able to throw somebody on to change the direction. Not to change the direction, but to take advantage of the momentum. Mm -hmm. And I just think that is a mindset, and and I think that's a mindset of a of a certain type of individual. I think this will be his last tournament, um, and I think there's an expectation and a necessity now to illustrate that there's real improvement. We've got to stop being grateful for doing things that previous generations didn't do mm -hmm. and perhaps should have done mm -hmm. at certain times and stop saying, well, they didn't do it there, so we're doing great here. As a footballing nation, with the talent available to us, with the Premier League the way it is, and I know that a lot of the Premier League is constructed with foreign players and foreign I coaches. Say, yeah, I get all that too. English players but are all boats, all boats rise on a high tide. So our players have gotten better as a result of some of that as well. Our homegrown players, we've seen more technically gifted players coming through, like the Jack Grealishes of the world and the Phil Fodens, mm -hmm. that might not have come through in different generations because they've got the benefit of foreign coaches as well as playing alongside foreign players. You might disagree with that. No, I agree. But the final observation on Southgate, Given I think this is the last tournament, and it's just my observation, do you see any evidence that that he will win that tournament? Uh, the Pep effect. Go ahead. Okay. So uh, I'm just going to chuck this one in there. Pep and Barcelona, when Spain won the World Cup, they were the largest contribu contribution club to that Spanish squad was Barcelona. When... Germany the won the place. World Cup. The largest contributing club was Bayern Munich, who also dominant club in Germany. Now Man City being the dominant club in England and, and Europe. Stones, Foden, Grealish. There's five. Yeah. Walker might not be there. <laughs> He's got to keep him. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I think I, the, the, there's an opportunity. I think uh, when your best team in the country, when your best team in the country is producing the best players, then so I do think you as think, an England manager, do, you play the best players. Do you've you got. think that then, as a result of that? That you can see Southgate winning the next tournament. He's definitely going to. I can't say he's going to win it because obviously, um, this was a year away. Yeah, who knows where anyone else is going to be? Because as, as well as or the improvements our Premier League players have made, our English players in the Premier League, the rest of the world's improved. I think he's got to win it. I think. I, I think, I think got, once, he hasn't. Once got... you no, but once you've had four tournaments, you kind of don't go on forever. Nothing lasts forever. No, no. I think it, uh, if he's to, if he's to lose it, it has to be to the best team. Yeah. And if you're going to lose a final to the best team, and, and uh, most people are going to go, I will tell you what, I can accept that. 
that. Yeah, the, yeah the, that's the only way that I would say that as an England player. I used to go into these tournaments and I could look around the side and say, we've got a great team here. Look at opposition and think they got a better team, but I'm not coming here to lose. Mm. Inevitably, we lost. Mm. But you don't go there to lose. And I think as long as England go in there to win, the only acceptable way of losing to is by the, yeah. losing to the better team. Or by some misfortune that is beyond your control. Like the penalties going the wrong side of the post. Or picking penalty takers that can take penalties. <laughs> All right. How about that? David, it's been illuminating and entertaining. Thank you, Thank you very much for being up front with me. Thank you for having me. Up Front With Me, Simon Jordan, is brought to you by William Hill. Future episodes can be found on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. 18 plus, please gamble responsibly. <laughs>